Welcome to This is Spinal Lap, a podcast on the thrilling world of motorsports, presented by your pedestrian host, Greg Mefford, only on the Ignotainment Media Network. Now, the most fantastically ordinary guy in broadcasting, Greg Mefford. Thank you very much, and uh, it's a pleasure to be back at it again. Uh, episode number four, and a little bit of a change in pace in this one, but uh, before we get to it, I'd like to, again, thank anybody and everybody that's uh, actually uh, taking some time to listen to uh, This is Spinal Lap. It's been uh, a pleasure to to bring it to you. Uh, as always, please pass the word out. We are now up on the iTunes network uh, under This is Spinal Lap, uh, and uh, rate us and uh, make comments, um, both good and bad. Would be much appreciated. And then uh, on the Stitcher Network, too, for those of you that are on the Android platform, uh, by all means go there. And uh, we did actually use the Twitter feed this week uh, to broadcast out uh, the the episode uh, that Gannon Diggs and I uh, did last week. Uh, and we'll do another one again this week as well, uh, which is a little bit of a reveal that uh, today uh, Gannon will not be joining me, at least for episode number four, who will be joining me is um, uh, my long-lost brother, who lives in, uh, of all places, Hong Kong, uh, is coming into the show and is going to be the panelist if for This Is Spinal App for Formula One. So with that, we send a, a big uh, um, ni hao to uh, Mr. John Mefford. John, how are you? Good, good. Uh, uh, good morning from, uh, from Hong Kong. That's right. And, uh, excited to be here. Well, glad glad you could uh, wake up this morning. Uh, you know, get get a breakfast in you, and then uh, join us. Um, to, to 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 for posterity's sake, I'll let you know we're recording this on the Monday night, uh, which would uh, put Hong Kong time uh, in the early morning, um, sometime somewhere around uh, eight eight nine o'clock about now, isn't it, John? In the morning. Uh, yeah, eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. You're right. Eight o'clock. There we go. Well, good. Well, appreciate you. Um, uh, taking the time uh, out of your busy morning to to, to join us and, and jump in. So, a little background on this. Um, my, my brother and I uh, have have always been um, passionate motorsport fans, and unfortunately, uh, my brother is the better of the two of us when it comes to actually racing. Um, he he actually made a career of of of, of some motor racing, and as such, um, can give some very interesting perspectives. Uh, and ideas uh, when it comes to perhaps the most sophisticated sport in the world, and that being Formula One from a motorsport perspective. And so uh, that's why I, I, I chose him to to jump on with us. Um, but to set the stage more importantly, I think before we get into a lot of Formula One um, talk, I thought we'd kind of talk about one question, John, that I actually, if you put a gun to my head, I don't have an answer to. What is What drew you to racing? Oh, that story is a <laughs> that's a long one i i think uh you know when we were growing up in europe and and uh as kids <clears throat> i think the uh part of it was a little bit of the exposure that we got to uh formula one back then but uh to be honest i think it probably stemmed from from uh you know our grandfather's uh farm uh and him you know, having that tractor, he had a big old farm tractor. Our grandfather was a was a farmer in uh, Chesterfield, Illinois, and uh, he used to take us out for rides on that thing and let us drive it uh, around town. And I think just the sheer sort of excitement of that, and 
and being in control of the tractor sort of uh, kind of incited that. And then he had a neighbor that built race cars and used to take us for rides down that, that road. And I don't know, from there it just sort of kind of stemmed. And, you know, with Uncle Gene as well, uh, who had passed away when we were young, sort of being around the race car community, uh, very well known in the USAC community, actually, in the, in the dirt sprint car uh, space. Um, I don't know. I think it, I just got drawn to it from the sheer speed and, and the like. And as it went on, and and uh, you know, every year I'd for for my our birthday I'd ask for uh, you know wanting to go to race school. Instead, mom and dad would give us a stereo uh, or or a computer. And so I never got there until I earned my own living and, and started doing it with you. Yeah. No. I, well, you know, it's funny. It's it's really interesting. Actually, I was. I was going down memory lane myself when you're talking about the the tractor rides because it's interesting you go there because I thought when you first were talking you were going to talk about how he used to take us to sometimes those dirt track races when we'd stay with um, um, grandpa and grandma you know out there and we'd go to that county fairgrounds wherever it was uh, or at least that's a memory I have I distinctly remember going and watching guys drive, drive modifieds um, I don't even know what racetrack it was that was out there um, and and watch them race but. Um, it's funny, actually. You're right. I, I remember. You're right. Those tractor rides were definitely uh, inspirational, and it was a. It was certainly a highlight of the day um, when 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 he came back from work and would would give us rides on that thing. Oh yeah, I mean it was. It's uh, hell. I can still still remember the smells of the thing. You know, driving down the road and uh, down in through the little ditch area and everything else. So yeah, I can remember the path that we took in that tiny little town. I think what two, three hundred people lived in the entire town. So yeah. it was a uh, was an exciting time. No, definitely. So 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 then, um, what was um, as you because you as you as you point out, we both uh, had the uh, tremendous opportunity to to live abroad as young young men, uh, and got exposed to Formula One a little bit there. But what was your first race that you actually went to? Oh, gee, I, uh, I don't even know. I think I don't think we're, it was until we got back to the States uh, that, uh, I mean, I, I think we had that motorcycle track out, out not far from us in, in Europe that used to go out and see some things. But uh, the official, official race, it yeah. must have been Indy. It in, must have been Indy. That's what I was thinking. I, I, I would have guessed that, that it would have been an Indy 500 would have been your, your first actual um, motorsport experience. And what do you remember from that? Oh, I, I mean, I, that was that was when I had a genuine interest in obviously following it in uh, on TV like crazy at that point. Um, what that was, uh, certainly after, um, you know, kind of being exposed to it and watching it and, and understanding it um, and then actually physically going, it was, a, I mean, it was a religious experience. Uh, it, it still is, to be honest, you know, uh, going to the 500 and, I think uh, it's it's one of those races that until you actually go uh, and turns a lot of people into race fans once they do go, just because of the sheer speed and and smells and and you know half a million people on premise and everything else, it's just a spectacular thing. And I think that really sucked me in as well. Yeah, no, well, I, I you know I couldn't agree to you more. I've alluded to it a few times, and as we get closer to the actual uh, month of May. Um, <clears throat> I'll regale um, our, our listeners in all sorts of stories and try to include a lot of people, yourself included, in in, in memories about Indy. But no doubt about it. In fact, I, I distinctly remember um, being very jealous because I could not attend a 500 until after I had actually graduated college because of my commitment to 
to baseball. Um, I was never able to get there, and you guys could always go um, and, and, and watch the race, and I would be stuck at home watching it on television. Um, yeah, but, I think I think we were we were fortunate too. I think we we got a spoiled experience at the 500 right from the get go with the with relationships and contacts and things like that of getting police escorts into the track and motorhomes and boxes and all that stuff. But that also was a great time in the 500. Uh, certainly not back in the in the real true heydays of the 500, but that was still when the infield was truly the infield. And uh, there was no fancy real golf course out there, and turn four was full of mud if it happened to be wet, and people sliding down half naked, and burning cars and couches and everything else. And That's right. People, uh, I distinctly remember a guy taking a nap in the uh, in the urinal trough in the in the bathroom as well. So it was those were good times in Indy. Yeah, those are those are fortunately or unfortunately, depending on on how you look at it, are, are long gone. Um, one of these days when you move back to the U.S. and can go again, uh, you'll be you'll be amazed at, at uh, even still how much improved they've done uh, with a lot of the, the race day activities. But it's still as exciting as ever, and, and, and the pomp and circumstance that goes into it, you know, definitely uh, keeps you. And I think you rightly said, I think anybody that goes for the very first time, it's hard for them not to have an appreciation at least for that event um, and, and, and a little more of appreciation for, for motorsport in and of itself. Um, but it's a great event for sure. So, so y- you take that experience from from going a few times and so forth and so on. When was the first time you drove a real go kart? Uh, not not crap at the state fair in Branson. Yeah, and you know, I, I I I to be honest, I think it's uh, that's a really good question. I mean, the first the first memory I have ever really was coming over and visiting you while you were living in Europe. Um, that first time that we did some indoor karting in Brussels. I mean, a true true race kart. Um, so you had uh, moved back and uh, you know to Brussels, and and we went to Brussels Kart or one of those indoor places that uh, you took me along, and we uh, we jumped right into it and did a two hour enduro or whatever it was. Um, that was, I think, possibly the first true racing cart experience that I'd had. Um, now, in fairness, to go back to one of your earlier questions about, you know, also getting into driving, and I probably shouldn't expose myself because mom and dad might listen to this at some point, but, um, you know, we, we uh, in Europe, mom drove a stick shift, if you remember, and, yes. and uh, you know, I used to sit in the right seat and shift with my left hand all the time while she would push the clutch and everything else. So that kind of incited the the interest in in the pure mechanics of the car and how that worked. And <clears throat> but uh, truth be told, uh, I uh, used to take mom's Audi out while I was probably still fourteen uh, years old uh, around the neighborhood while we lived in uh, St. Louis. Uh, well, I believe rumor has uh, it you drove all the way up to the Seven Eleven at one point. <laughs> I, I won't. I will not um, uh, refute that uh, report. But I, I, I don't know if I actually ever really made it out there. But I, I certainly have been on some roads before. Yeah. Got it. I got it. Well, it was a good car to drive with because you're right. It was a stick. Um, wow. Okay. So I, I wasn't. Sure. That was the one question I wasn't when I was writing down uh, some some ideas of of what to ask you. I thought that was the case. That the first time you had driven a cart was when you came over to Brussels to. Uh, to visit one of the the holidays that you did, um, and actually got on one for the very first time, so 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 I guess in an indirect way I can claim that I that I that I incited the professional passion in you to to try to pursue it. Then, 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's a fair claim. Um, uh, you know, it, it it again was it was a genuine interest of mine for a very very long time, and uh, by note of how many speeding tickets I got in high school as well, um, and actually got thrown in jail once. But but it it uh, it, it really incited from the fact that. Once I actually got to experience firsthand and, and drive in an actual race um, and start to understand that there was a lot more to racing than, than just, you know, pushing hard on the on the right pedal. Um, because I particularly remember in some of those first experiences, or at least the first couple of races you and I did in those indoor uh, karting events was, uh, you know, how it pretty much got spanked in, in so many different parts of the racetrack and couldn't figure out why and understand the dynamics and geometry of racing and and uh you know tire grip and all those types of things so it 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 fundamentally fired me up to learn you know the techniques and and immediately went back to the united states and if you remember just jumped right into it head first at uh, jim hall karting in california yeah yeah well again since this is being recorded and it's on record it was your inspirational bigger brother that taught that 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 led you down the path of motor racing right just i want to get this on record yeah, no, no, I, I knew you were going to go there, but I, I will not give you any credit to the uh, to the talent that existed prenatural. Well, that was about the only time that I was faster than you once we got head to head. I'll say that, and then from there on, that's out, probably I, true. I could never match a one lap time that you've ever done for the most part. So, all right, so you go to Jim Hall, and then uh, in in and I know you raced in one of his race series, and then. Um, and then what did you go to after, you know, kind of graduating from Hall? What was the first real, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, what was the next race series that you got involved with? Yeah, I did a couple series with him. Um, I did the Sprint Cars, which is a 100cc uh, cycle motor for, for, you know, two-stroke motor that uh, has no gears. And then, um, and I can't remember where I finished in that series, I think second or third or something like that. And then... Jumped right in. Uh, I actually won one. We did two of those, and then I won won the shifter cart series that he did um, uh, as well. And from and, those big, and, and explain starting to explain John the difference between kind of you know, as you see, a shifter cart versus what you were doing before. What, what's the what's the fundamental oh, sure. difference? The fundamental difference is there's gears in the shifter cart versus no gears in the in the uh, the normal 100 cc cycle cart two stroker, and it just essentially just means you got to brake and gas, and and you don't have to do anything else but steer. But in a shifter cart, it's it's essentially a motorcycle engine with six gears, and you actually have to shift like you would in a normal car, slightly differently. Uh, but you you essentially uh, are moving through the gears, and you're moving through them very quickly. There's no clutch. Uh, except to start the cart and and get rolling, but after that you're just flipping through gears uh, almost like you can on a on a motocross motorcycle. So very much, very much a, a good way to indoctrinate yourself into stepping up in, in into the into the early rungs of 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 racing. Yeah, they you know that a lot of the F1 drivers, IndyCar drivers, any of them. I mean, uh, even Jeff Gordon jumps back in the shifter carts. They're the best training tool and most clearly matched. Uh, uh, you know, sort of training v- vehicle, if you will, to any kind of open wheel or any kind of racing at all. It keeps you sharp. It's it's incredibly fast, and you know, only at three quarters inch off the ground, uh, roughly, and you know, you can attain speeds of up to 120 miles an hour. So, it's uh, it's it's pound for pound, um, probably the closest thing to a Formula One race car that you can possibly get in terms of characteristics and capabilities of the car. 
With that, well, without question, in, in my limited experience in driving shifter carts, they are incredibly taxing from a physical perspective too. Um, so it's good training in that way too, you know, for your core strength in your neck. That's right. There's very few ways to actually train as a race car driver to to uh, prepare yourself for the G loads and and everything else that you go through. Um, you know, you can twist weights in your hands and stuff like that, but it will never simulate the actual forces that get placed on your body. Um, and shifter carts, um, like you said, are incredibly taxing to drive and uh, are the best mechanism of uh, preparing for any kind of any kind of racing. It's it's the same way that golfers go out and swing a thousand times a day, like Tiger Woods, to to uh, to, to train. There's no better substitute for racing preparation than actually racing itself. And clearly, not everybody can jump in a Formula One car, an Indy car, an NASCAR. Or any kind of car at, at a track very easily and go-karting is the most successful way to do that. Yeah, no no question about it. So so after shifter carts, did you get into Formula Mazda or was there something in between those two? Am I missing something? Yeah, so we, we jumped. So out of the championships I won with Jim Hall, um, I got a couple scholarships to uh, – I got a three-day oh, um, yeah, racing right. school with Skip Arbor and also right. to uh, the Jim Russell School at Sears Point as well. And so I started to get involved in both of their systems um, and allowed me to progress uh, and quickly learn about their amateur formula racing series. And I did uh, a couple years in the Skip Arbor Amateur Championship Series, which was a feeder series at the time through uh, Andy Lights and, and IndyCar. And uh, also in the Jim Russell Series, which fed into uh, the Jim Russell Pro Series, which also fed into Formula Mazda at the time as well. Yeah. Um, so two different types of cars, both open wheel, and uh, I spent several years in that system before moving on to Formula Mazda. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot you did both. That's right. And and so for those that that, that don't know, because it is it is very convoluted um, and not very clear in IndyCar. For a long period of time, they're trying to establish a feeder system, and they seem to have accomplished that now. But back when John was racing, uh, they had this thing called Indy Lights. So call it. It was the equivalent of AAA racing, and if, if AAA is Indy Lights, and then and then IndyCar is Major League, that that's that that's what he's referring to when he's referring to uh, a feeder system to Indy Lights. So essentially, you're run one rung down from from an Indy Lights um, opportunity, possibly. Uh, well, yeah, essentially, it was a, it was a feeder series at the time. It went from the amateur series to the Skip Barber Pro Series, and then from the Skip Barber Pro Series, you would move on uh, to uh, to Indy Lights if you you know won the championship or your natural progression uh, as you as you started to march through the series. Yeah. As you said, a lot of the series have realigned, but there there are multiple. At that time, there were multiple feeder series for the various different racing. Uh, entities that were going on now it's consolidated and there's there's a fairly pr- clear path but skip arbor amateur series is the start for many of the most famous race car drivers that exist today uh from the andretti's to the unsters to uh, uh some of the guys scott speed uh aj allmendinger everybody Dan- sort of kind of marched through that path well danica patrick went I through there too with, right? i raced with many of them yeah, yeah. yeah danica patrick and everybody as a matter of fact uh, I coached Danica Patrick one time as a as a racing uh, skip barber instructor. Yeah. No, it's it's really interesting. And so, um, when when you look back on it, and and, and not not to prolong, John John went on from there um, to end up racing in in American Le Mans actually uh, at the, at the various high le- highest level 
of uh, of uh, sports car racing, uh, certainly in the United States and in the world for that matter at this point. And and uh, for lack of a better term, probably hit the zenith when 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 running the. Uh, uh, Road Atlanta race, um, which was on television and the whole nine. I mean, wh- what was that? I mean, to to be at that level and, and driving against, in some cases, guys that were driving Formula One a couple of seasons before, or one season before. I think Alan McNish had just left Formula One. What was that like? Uh, I mean, that was that was an amazing experience. I mean, m- moving through the ranks and and. Uh having the opportunity and, and just the absolute honor of racing against guys like that on the track. Um, you're exactly right at Petit Le Mans. I mean, Alec Manish was there. Tom Christensen, who's now the winningest sports car driver in the history of, of Le Mans. Um, and uh, Capello and Piero and, and all the fantastic uh, Corvette drivers and, and Andy Pilgrim and Ron Fellows. And, I mean, just the names go on and on. It just And just super 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 great guys uh it was just a, an incredible experience i actually remember uh one of the times sitting in the autograph booth and just feeling completely out of space you know before every race they ask the drivers to go up to an area where the fans can come through and you sign sign autographs through the marching through american Le Mans, uh you know all the all the drivers and uh it was a surreal experience it didn't even feel like i belonged there so yeah no i that, no i mean it was ama- it was amazing to see i mean unfortunately um the race ended a little bit early but it was pretty cool to see the mefford name scroll uh, below the television um when the race was going on you know i mean it it uh it was it was cool it was cool to just as as a, as a fan and then let alone seeing your brother out there doing something like that is uh, is pretty cool so um, you know, to sort of maybe put a goalpost around about around it a little bit. So, what what you know, what what was the turning point for you in terms of the drop off point of going balls to the wall and continuing to pursue that because you had gotten to the very highest level and not because I think this and I'm I know I'm giving you a lead a, a sort of a leading question, John, because I know the answer to this. But what what was it that I think all racers run into at some point? You know, that was like that you you had the talent you had all the right skills um what was the next element that you needed to get to get over that top well i mean it all it all unfortunately comes down to money and um and it's one of the challenges uh that everybody faces you know for for 10 percent of the time that you spend in the race car you spend 90 percent of your time chasing money uh through sponsorship uh, you know, through private investment or what have you, and and fortunately or unfortunately, um, that's uh, that's a big inhibitor to a lot of great talent. Uh, you know, in the U.S. or in the racing community in general, it's it's very likened to the music business. You know, uh, out of out of the hundred or two or three thousand bands that exist, and you know, one makes it big. And racing is not too dissimilar. There are guys that make it through on pure talent who get recognized by guys um, that, uh, you know, decide to back them and move that through. A.J. Allen-Madeira is a perfect example of that, where it's just yeah. un- unfathomable talent and uh, got recognized very quickly by some of the greats in the motorsports arena and some, some private investment that got him through. But, you know, a lot of cases it's guys that come from very influential backgrounds that are able to continue to, to pursue their dream and, and become race car drivers. So it is a bit unfortunate that a lot of talent gets left on the side. Some of the guys I had the pleasure of being instructors with at Skip Barber are some of the best race car drivers I've ever seen. But 
never could get to that next rung or never get that break that they needed to to become you know the the next uh, uh, NASCAR star or, or IndyCar star. Yeah. So it's it's unfortunate, but yeah, that that really sort of ended it. Yeah. Well, and and you know, no, and 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 as I said, I need the answer to that question before I asked it. But no, it it is. It's a sport of kings. I mean, it's sort of like horse racing. You know, it is a a very much money driven sport. And um, and to get into those upper levels, you you get you to your point. You got to hustle or, and get lucky. Because uh, I think you're you you relating it to the music industry is a good way to do it. Because you're right. There's there's hundreds, if not thousands, of guys that can play guitar like Eddie Van Halen. But you just have to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, you know, to be able to pull it off. So anyways, but anyways, so, so I think without question, everyone who's listening to this at this point can agree that, um, you know, J- John is certainly very well qualified <laughs> to be talking about motorsport for sure. Um, certainly more qualified than the actual, uh, pedestrian host. So, um, with that in mind, um, we are nearing sort of the, the, the 28, 29 minute mark here, John, but I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about really the 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 week in and week out stuff that we'll talk about is is F one, uh, having just come off the Australian Grand Prix. Um, what are your top line thoughts on what you saw on Sunday? Well, I I, I mean it, it certainly would would require a decent conversation to set up in terms of the, you know where Formula One has come into the season and sort of what the first the show, if you will, kind of revealed in in race one and. It's sort of telling, uh, you know, in terms of all the complexities of Formula One and how difficult it is, even for the, you know, what are considered to be the highest flight teams in the world to deal with the change all the time. And I think the Australian race was, was sort of proof positive, unfortunately, of, of some of those complications and really sort of kind of turned out to be what I'd call a boring race from a, from a pure motorsports fan perspective, um, simply because you know, uh, at the end of the, you know, at the beginning of the race, there, there essentially was only 15 cars that started the race, and rapidly we continued to lose and see attrition um, throughout it. And I think there was only 11 finishers, which is the first time in since I think 1963, or one of the lowest finishing uh, fields in Formula One history, or something like that. I don't have the stats in front of me, but. It was a challenging race, um, and I think it's you know it's no fault of the teams. They're doing the best they can in the short off season they have. But at the end of the day, all the rules changes, engine package changes, uh, teething problems, and also it just shows how complicated the sport actually has become. Yeah, no, I, I you know I, I couldn't agree with that more. And as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, one of the things uh, if we haven't lost them already, if, if all we have is gearheads here, I apologize. Still listening, but. One of the things that I think might be interesting, and I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit because it's not necessarily something that you prepped, but what is Formula One as a race series as opposed to, say, NASCAR? And there's a distinct look there, and as opposed to IndyCar. You know, it, how would you define sort of that, that triangle of motorsport? You know, Formula One, like, what is the difference between NASCAR and Formula One? And what is the difference between Formula One and IndyCar? Yeah, I think I think you could almost looking at, look at them as almost sort of stepping stepping stones from a technology perspective. They're they're clearly different from a driver's perspective. Completely, all three very different from each other. I mean, any car in Formula One probably more relatable, but even then, the cars are incredibly different to drive. But from a from a from a mechanical perspective, 
NASCAR is as out of the box, if you will, as you can possibly be. There are very, very strict rules and regulations. Every single car is identical in terms of its form and shape outside of clearly the different manufacturers' bodies that they try to try to, to put on the cars. Uh, but in terms of the, the, the chassis or the, the, the core of the car, uh, everybody's car is meant to be as equal as they can possibly make it by dimension, by motor size, by everything else. And there's very little that the NASCAR teams can do to those cars to change that. Right. There's no, there's no, uh, data telemetry. There's no high end information that, uh, you know, one of their race guys can plug a computer in and pull a bunch of data off of it in, in any significant form like there is in level start. That data exists, don't get me wrong, but it's not, high-end, high-end type stuff, right? So then you move into IndyCar, and, and of course that becomes an open-wheel car. You do now have like chassis or like car um, frames that are very similar to each other, but they can change a lot more on the car, engineering-wise, um, whether that be the wing settings or the aerodynamic settings in general, uh, uh, suspension packages and a bunch of other stuff. And then Formula One is the ultimate in terms of... Um, those cars are individually made by every single team every single year a new car is produced there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of wind tunnel testing that goes on to get those cars i mean formula one has become so advanced that that the actual um aerospace engineers graduating from from school they're not going to nasa anymore they're trying to get jobs with formula one it's just become technologically the most advanced motorsports uh space you know in the world Every single part is manufactured to a spec of the team's design and everything else. So it's it's the ultimate in terms of technology. Yeah, no question. And and and, and hence, because of that, also then becomes you know one of the most expensive sports in the world. I mean, the 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 I, I don't know what the, the you know this year's Ferrari value is or what they're putting into the motorsport thing, but I got to believe it's it's north of you know two hundred fifty million dollars to go racing in, in F one this year. Oh well, well north of that. I mean, Formula One has reached the Ferrari and McLaren and and Red Bull are spending somewhere north of actually four hundred and fifty million dollars these wow. days to put two cars on the track. And to put that in perspective, it's 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 probably closer to you know forty or fifty million dollars for a NASCAR team to really go out and compete uh, in a full series of NASCAR. There's certainly teams who are probably spending uh, you know more, and there's certainly teams that are spending far less than that. But to put it in perspective, I mean, Formula One is is four, five, six times, uh, you know, any other racing series in the world in terms of pure cost. Yeah, no, and, and that's that, that's the right way to put it. Actually, you're right. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling how much money gets spent on that sport. Um, and, but but it's also mind-boggling its its popularity globally, which then brings us right back to the race in that. All the things you just talked about in terms of all the development and the fact that they build their own cars. Um, and and virtually machine every piece that's on there to try to find an extra tenth, uh, hundredth, uh, thousandth in some instances of a second leads to a very difficult situation, which I think the way you sort of articulated is what happened in Australia where suddenly you realize how far out to pasture a few of the cars are and how far advanced some of the others are, notably the Mercedes team. And and that really does put a big damper on on the competitiveness of the entire field. Don't you agree? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the field is incredibly spread out. I mean, I think there was a difference of nearly three and a half seconds between the the pole position and 
and where the McLarens had, uh, you know, the back of the grid had, had qualified. And the fact that I even said the McLaren is on the back of the grid is is a testament to to some of the teething issues that they've had switching to a new Honda engine package, you know, that's brand near. The Honda just jumping back into Formula One this year for the first time in a very, very long time. Right. Um, and, and to have a spread of, of that much, uh, across a, a qualifying grid in, in Formula One, while it doesn't, to the layman, doesn't sound like a lot of time, that is a huge gap, uh, in terms of Formula One racing. And, uh, you know, if you, if you've got a very junior team that's just entered Formula One, okay, they may be four or five seconds behind, but McLaren themselves to be three and a half or four seconds behind, that's just, uh, outrageous. So it, it, it is a, there is a great spread amongst the teams and an inequality amongst all the teams as well. I mean, that's part of the sport as well. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't produce exciting racing for the fans. Well, I think it's the first time that I can remember um, in Formula One. You've always had – there's always a have and have not aspect to, to Formula One racing, more so than any other – well, IndyCar's had it off and on in different years. But but Formula One's always been distinct. There's always been maybe legitimately, let's call it eight drivers when the season starts that might have a shot at the at the actual championship, and the other eight, there's not a snowball chance in hell. And this is the first year that I can remember where – it just seems there's a huge gap between a number of teams that normally are in those top, you know, four teams or eight drivers, as I just alluded to, that are, that are capable of of you know producing a result. And my guess is we got to go back to like the Alain Prost years and Senna years when they were in McLaren, where you had such a wide disparity, where it's just two cars that would run off and and leave everybody else, and and. Unfortunately, I think we're going to be stuck with this for the next four or five races too, until until you know some development starts to come around. Yeah, I don't I don't think that there's any doubt that I mean again Mercedes is the one to knock off, and they probably will go on and dominate again like they did last year. I think if you go back and look at to your point, you go back and look at history. There are markers where there were just sheer domination by a particular team. Uh, because of a rule change, and, you, and typically it would happen after a rule change. If you go back to Jensen Button's championship at Bar, yeah, um, they were able to take advantage of a of a chassis change that particular year, and they interpreted it right. They got something really special for for an aerodynamic piece in their car that hands down made them ten times better than anybody else for the first half of the season. Yep. The difference there, though, was is that everybody started to catch up by mid season. In terms of development of their particular cars, I think last year showed very clearly how dominating Mercedes was, and the real significant change was some aerodynamic changes, but more importantly, the engine package. And Mercedes just nailed it in terms of their engine package last year, and they clearly got it right again this year. Yeah, and I think it is a slight positive too. You can see some other teams that are catching up. The fact that Ferrari finished third um, is a, is a welcome. Uh, change from last year where they were struggling to be midfield. Um, it's quite disappointing to see Red Bull as far down this year. I thought they would be far more competitive. Um, uh, but I'll tell you what was the big surprise. Um, you know, clearly, uh, Sauber is back to play, uh, yeah. which was always a third or fourth tier team and now well up in there and scoring points and everything else. So Agreed. it's, 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 it's certainly going to pose an interesting, I mean, Mercedes is, is going to finish one, two. Let's just call that day. Now we got to watch for third, fourth, and fifth. And I think that's still probably where it's going to be exciting. And that was 
true last year as well. Well, and, and I wanted to kind of circle back to something that you said, and as in regards to Jensen Button, because I thought it was sort of interesting to, to – and I don't know if you got this on the broadcast in, um, in, in Hong Kong, but the U.S. guys, um, we got the radio transmission at one point. Um, Jensen gets radioed, and it's about, I don't know, 15, 20 laps in, and it says, hey, look, the attrition rate's going to be pretty high today. Keep at this because we might get lucky and finish in the points. And I'm thinking, here's a former world champion um, who, who's praying that there's enough attrition that he can get into a points-paying position. And more importantly, the U.S. broadcasters were talking about how they didn't think the Honda, you know, that, that Jensen was even going to finish the race. He had not made it through any practice session. He, in fact, when he took lap 11, it was the most laps he'd driven in that car on that circuit the entire weekend he had been there. And I just thought, God, that's so telling as to where where F1 is right now um, in terms of, you know, or, or where certain teams are in terms of catch-up because, you know, having a guy of that stature, um, having to drive a car like that, that they're not even sure it's going to make it the whole race is just sort of like, wow, that's an eye-opener. No, it is. It was, it was a, it's a crazy situation and probably an incredibly frustrating one because, you know, many would say that Jensen wasn't sure he was even going to be driving this year. Yeah. Um, and he was able to work that out. I mean, the fact that Fernando Alonso is now his teammate, unfortunately he was hurt so he couldn't race this week, but um, I can't imagine what he was thinking sitting at home watching the race going, oh, my God, what did I do moving from Ferrari? But, yeah. you know, I, I think that that is a teething issue. And in fairness to Honda, you know, they came out and they were incredibly conservative in the way that they, they set their engine mappings, uh, you know, and the way they set their, their engine up to run. They certainly were not letting it run 100% yet. Um yeah, and you know they had a lot of teething problems in the in the off season getting ready for it as well. But um, you know I th- I think they're going to come around, and I think Jensen knows that he's been through this game enough to know. Yeah. But yes, it's it's got to be frustrating for him to just be driving to hold onto the car and finish rather than driving to be competitive. No, exactly. I mean, it was it was impressive to me, and and I couldn't agree with you more about you know, Honda will figure it out. There's, and 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 again, that was an underlying tone of of what uh, the U.S. broadcasters were saying as well as, yeah, this won't last for long. You know, um, Honda Honda does not like to sit on the sidelines for long, and clearly they bit off more than they could chew to start with, not realizing that this new spec on the engine was a lot more difficult to overcome. And a lot of teams dealt with it last year, I guess, and, and struggled for, for quite a bit of time. Mercedes obviously figured it out. But um, so so we'll see. But I just thought it was like, you know, this is incredible that Jensen Button is is in a situation where literally he's just hoping to finish the race and, and get lucky that, uh, you know, only uh, three or four cars, I mean, it was one or two cars away from a points-paying position just by sheerly just st- sticking with it and staying out there. Um, and he got there, so... Yeah, I mean it's it's going to be a season of Nico and and Hamilton again, no question, and then third and fourth. I, I think you know it is telling about how the the result of the race wound up, and and even the driver's perspectives. I was sort of reading a lot of post race uh, press conference information, and a lot of the drivers, you know, uh, were were very apologetic to the fans, saying, "Yeah, this must have been incredibly boring because it was even boring for us in the race, right?" Yeah. Um, when you think about only eleven cars um, circulating on a track of you know two and a half or three miles long, it's you're not running into a lot of excitement even as a driver. Either right. you're pretty much out there driving just qualifying laps, so. It gets boring. Well, I, I I I I can sympathize, but then at least they had eleven. I sat and watched a race with six, 
Uh, two of them were Ferraris, yeah. and four of them uh, were, were about in the same category as Jensen Button's car were. So it was a, a um, it was a boring race to, to say the yeah. least. Yeah, no. So. In, in fairness, it was so exciting up front as that race at Indy when they ran six, but yeah. uh, just for those two Ferraris to run against each other, I think and, anybody competing against somebody is interesting. But yeah. you know, as a as a fan, as a diehard Motorsports fan like you and I are. I think that, that we can find the excitement out of that for the common man. I, I just don't believe that they can do that. Right? Yeah, it was a little rough. I agree with you. Well, and you brought up some really interesting th- – I'm going to make a couple of notes here too because I think at some point we should talk about tire technologies a little bit and kind of dumb that down and explain it to people because with all these options that they have now in Formula 1, I think that's kind of a cool turn um, and putting those, the, the, the different colors on the outside of it. But I think your perspective and explaining it in layman's terms – the differences that, and the choices that they have, and, and the different strategies that they employ, because it really plays out in Formula One more than any other motorsport. They yeah, they talk about it in NASCAR, and certainly at the 500 mile. Well, at Indy, it plays a factor um, for sure, but in most cases, not. You know, the tire technology is so important in Formula One, particularly now that they don't refuel. We should talk about that too at some point. So, but with that in mind, John, we are almost on the 45 minute mark. So. Just so I don't want to put everybody to sleep that listens to the show and and save some good tidbits for you in the in the coming weeks as we go. I want to say thank you for again spending the morning with us and uh, and and contributing to this as Spinal Lap, and we will uh, look forward to having you uh, join in, uh, in 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 a couple of weeks uh, when we we get to the next F1 race. So thank you. Oh well, thanks for having me, and I uh, like you said, I think there's a lot we still have to talk about, so I'm I'm excited about doing it, and it's uh, it's my pleasure. All right, you got it. All right, well, have a good one, and uh, from that, we're gonna say uh, adios. We're out of here from uh, from the Edwardsville Ignotainment Studios. This is Spinal Lap with Greg Mefford, only on the Ignotainment Media Network. Visit our website at www.spinallap.com. Follow us on Twitter at Spinal Lap or on Facebook at This Is Spinal Lap. Only on the Ignotainment Media Network.